Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Carrie Keller-Lynn and Aliza Landis are the hosts of the podcast, Us Among the Israelis. They discuss fascinating and sometimes even hilarious or bizarre aspects of life in Israel. Basically, all of those things that Israelis wouldn't bat an eye at, but if you're American-born like them, or just a non-native Israeli, might make your jaw drop. Each week, they attempt to discover something new about the way Israel works, with a guest to help them figure it out, and you should join them. They cover politics, culture, and demographics, and because they're elder millennials, to keep themselves interested, they only take on stories where they can offer a fresh angle. Their goal is to make you the most interesting person in any conversation about Israel. So take a listen to Us Among the Israelis, wherever you get your podcasts. Last Friday, Iran elected Ebrahim Raisi to succeed Hassan Rouhani as president. Well, it's an exaggeration to say that Iran elected him because the supreme leader of Iran picked which candidates were allowed to run in the election and made clear that he wanted to see Raisi win. The regime announced that only 48.8% of eligible voters turned out and 12% of all ballots cast were deemed spoiled suggesting that they had been left blank as protest votes. Joining us now to discuss what all of this means for the future of Iran and the Iranian nuclear deal between the U.S., Europe, and the Islamic Republic is Daniel Schwamenthal, the director of AJC's Brussels-based Transatlantic Institute. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Let's start with some background. Who is Ebrahim Raisi? Well, he is really also known under his nom de guerre, the Butcher of Tehran. He has been involved in, well, to call it the judicial system of Iran is almost a blasphemy, but he has been a jurist and a judge for most of his career, and he was particularly involved in what is still the biggest crime committed by the Iranian regime, the execution of thousands of Iranians after the Iran-Iraq war. And he personally interrogated the prisoners and signed the execution orders and also instructed his torturers to uh, rape virgin prisoners because according to their perverted jurisprudence, virgins could not be executed, so they had to be raped first, and it also served the purpose that according to their own doctrines, they wouldn't be accepted in heaven. So he is, of all the presidents who are all, of course, who came before him, intimately involved in all the crimes of this regime, really the one who really has the most blood on his hands. It's never good when uh, someone whose nickname is the butcher of blank is elected somewhere, but it seems like a shocking elevation to the world stage of someone who is really a terrible, terrible figure. What has been the response? You know, Europe, where you're based, is really, in many ways, the epicenter of kind of the global human rights movement. What has been the response out of those corners? Are people 
appropriately exercised about this man and his nefarious deeds? Well, it has been reported in the media. I have yet to see real political reactions. I may have missed them, but I think it's a little bit similar to what is going on in the United States because the European countries involved in the negotiations, so that is Germany, France, and the UK, as well as the EU, I'm talking about the negotiations about the Iran nuclear deal, are really so invested in it and are so eager to make sure that they will be able to re-enter the deal, that they are a little bit quiet on this front. Uh, I mean, that's at least how I explain it. And we'll come back to the nuclear deal in a moment. But Daniel, ultimately, no matter who is the president of Iran, Ayatollah Khamenei calls the shots, right? So why does this election matter? You're absolutely right. The real power is the supreme leader and uh, in combination with the Iranian Revolutionary Guards who have become another real power center. And in that sense, you're also right that when presidents were not elected but more selected by the supreme leader who came across as perhaps more moderate reformists, that, that this was really a charade. The current president, Rouhani, was received with great relief by the West and, and certainly a, a rather gullible Western media who welcomed him as a reformer, as a moderate. He was nothing of the kind. Under his government, both the internal oppression as well as the external aggression have intensified. And he himself, Rouhani, has been, you know, from day one intimately involved in the regime. He also played a leading role, particularly in the late 90s, in suppressing the Iranian pro-democracy student protest. There are some chilling quotes from him where he said that we will mercilessly crush it. But nevertheless, compared to his predecessor, if people remember Ahmadinejad, he was or is somebody who is, of course, much more sophisticated, much more comfortable with engaging the West, and sort of was able to put a more humane face on this regime, together with his foreign minister, Zarif, who was aptly called by former Polish foreign minister Sarkowski, He's now a member of the European Parliament, and when they were debating Iranian human rights violation, he called Zarif a smiling Ribbentrop, because that's exactly what he is, together with Rouhani. They serve the same regime, they serve the same human rights violating, terror-supporting regime, but do it in a more sophisticated way, and give sort of a plausible deniability that engaging with such a regime can maybe lead to Iranian moderation. Of course, it never did. And the significance of this selection, therefore, is that, you know, we, we can now finally dispense with this charade. The supreme leader has now selected somebody who really truly represents the true nature of the regime. We can no longer pretend that there is anything moderating about this new president, but ultimately, as you rightly said, in terms of policy, nothing changes. I read a very interesting op-ed by Mariam Memasadegi in Tablet Magazine. She is a pro-democracy activist. And she said the purpose of this election was, on the one hand, to really humiliate the United States by forcing it in that way to agree and to engage with Iran that clearly is now represented by a torturer and executioner, and also to demoralize the Iranian public and the Iranian people who want to see freedom 
and now are being represented by somebody like him, but also are demoralized because they may be witnessing how the United States will continue to engage a regime represented by such a man. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still stuck on the smiling Ribbentrop line. I, I guess uh, you know when a poll calls someone a Ribbentrop, they're really pissed off. Daniel, two scholars at the International Crisis Group, the think tank where Rob Malley, the U.S. Special Envoy on Iran, used to work, published an op-ed in the Times this week in which they argued that actually Raisi's election was good news because an Iran that is more authoritarian and repressive at home will be eager for a quiet foreign arena, which maybe plays into the hands of Western interlocutors. And so I'm wondering if you were to try to find some good news in Raisi's win, you mentioned that, you know, this finally reveals the Iranian regime for what it is. What would you point to when it comes to the good news? Obviously, these people are more activists for pursuing a deal no matter what, rather than real evidence-based analysts. Because obviously, had they elected or selected a, a so-called moderate, I'm sure they would have written this shows that pursuing a nuclear deal is the right approach and that Iran is moderating. And now that they... <laughs> there is something striking about that, isn't there? There's right. something striking about the fact that eight years ago or whatever it is, when Rouhani was elected... It was, this is Iran's pivot, this is the moderating influence, you know, and everyone kind of found the good news there. And now, you know, the least moderate conceivable candidate was elected and, and people are still, you know, eager to find the good news. Frankly, I'm not sure we can point to so much that is radically different in terms of Iran's standing in the world today versus eight years ago that would justify having those kind of polar opposite approaches to, you know, vastly different candidates winning the election. No, absolutely. There is no evidence-based justification. This is, as I said, I think they are simply promoting the policy of their former boss. No matter what happens, it's the right policy. And obviously, this is not connected uh, to the reality. So from my perspective, as somebody who thinks that re-entering the JCPOA is a big, big mistake, will make America less safe, the region less safe, and will make the Iranian people less safe. So for me, the, the sort of good news is what we discussed earlier. It, it, it is the fact that and nobody can claim anymore. I mean, in my views, previous claims that Rouhani supposedly was a moderate were completely implausible. But now the gig is up, right? I mean, nobody can really make any claims about any kind of moderation. And we can see this regime for what it truly is. And I think it ought to make it a little bit easier, hopefully, in the discussions that are to be had about Iranian foreign policy, to be clear-eyed and that foreign policy will be based on reality and not on wishful thinking. In his first press conference since being elected, Raisi pledged not to negotiate with the West on the issues of Iranian ballistic missile development and Iran's sponsorship of terror proxies, two critical issues that threaten and destabilize the entire Middle East. Do you think the election of an ultra-hardliner who seems entirely unwilling to bend on these issues makes a restored nuclear deal more likely or less likely? Or does it really not change the calculus because the Biden administration and the Europeans were determined to get a deal and they're not going to be foiled just because of Iranian politics? Yeah, I would hope and one would expect that these statements should make it less likely. But I'm sorry that I think I have to agree with what you hinted at, that 
Unfortunately, both the US administration and the relevant European powers seem determined to re-enter the nuclear deal no matter what. But ultimately, if they were following what he said, that it should give them reason to pause because they claim that they want to re-enter the JCPA also then in order in a second step to negotiate a longer and stronger deal, as they put it. Now, it is very difficult to imagine such a second step under any circumstances because once the West gives up all its leverage, once it lifts all sanctions, why would Iran have any incentive to negotiate even stricter constraints for its nuclear program? But now that the president rules it out out of hand, I would at least like to hear the reaction from both the U.S. administrations and the European partners on this. One reaction that we've seen this week, an interesting parallel story, is that the U.S. government seized several websites controlled by official Iranian propaganda outlets, most notably, I think most notably, that of Press TV, which has kind of been the English language mouthpiece of the Iranian regime for the past decade and a half or so. What do you think this move can tell us about the feelings toward Iran and the Biden administration? Well, I certainly welcome it. It's a positive step. Press TV really is a propaganda television station that also paddles, of course, in anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. Corbyn, the former labor leader in Britain, used to have a show on press TV, unbelievably. But I'm not 100% sure whether this is really at the forefront of what we are dealing with. If at the same time the administration proceeds to lift sanctions and even, as seems to be the case, also lift not just nuclear-related sanctions, but also sanctions linked to Iran's support uh, for terrorism, for its human rights violations and other than, then that step of shutting down these websites, as welcome as it is, at the same time is also a little bit then, you know, of minor importance. Well, there will be much more news to watch coming out of Iran in the uh, weeks and months to come. Daniel, thank you so much for this very helpful update and for guiding us through these complicated matters. My pleasure. Would you like to be a guest in our recording studio? Here's your chance. Please take some time to fill out our audience survey available now at ajc.org slash podcast survey. It will only take a minute, and even if you don't land a guest spot, you will receive a special gift from AJC. Your feedback will help shape future episodes of People of the Pod. Go to ajc.org slash podcast survey. Lately, Israeli leaders at the highest levels, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and Foreign Minister Yair Lapid, have been speaking about shrinking the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. This phrase, shrinking the conflict, was coined a couple of years ago by Israeli public intellectual Micha Goodman in his best-selling book, Catch 67. We sat down with Micha then to discuss what exactly it means to shrink the conflict and why that is a necessary step before any final status solution. Since shrinking the conflict is now something approaching official Israeli policy, we're diving into the AJC People of the Pod archives to bring you that conversation now. Micha, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Before we get into the thesis of this remarkable book that you've written, can you tell us your own story? How did you end up leading a Beit Midrash, a Jewish textual study program for a mix of secular and religious kids out on a hilltop in the West Bank? Well, I, uh, let's, let's, let's separate the location from what it is, okay? So because um, the, uh, the, the Beit Midrash is not in the hilltop of the West Bank. There is, uh, we have a campus in and in the forest of Jerusalem, and we have something in Tel Aviv and something in Jerusalem, and something in Alon, which is uh, which is in the Malaya Adumim area. Fair enough. So this these Batei Midrash, this network of Batei Midrash, was it began in roughly 2005. Sometimes there was a pilot. 2006, it started working. I guess it has to do with a strong feeling that me and some friends of mine had. This is like the kind of school we've never learned in. And I'm talking about three aspects to it. One, being after the army, meaning after the army in Israel is a very powerful age where people seek and search and on the journey. And we thought that this would be something very powerful and interesting for that very specific age group of being after the army and feeling that you're before the great journey of life. Two, I've been in the academic world and I've been in the yeshiva world. And the academic world is very diverse, pluralistic. The yeshiva world is very passionate. And our question is, can we build a Beit Midrash that has the passion of the yeshiva world and the diversity, pluralism of the academic world? And finally, in Israel, usually the educational systems are very separate for secular and religious. Within the religious world, for men and for women, and it was important for us for it to be diverse on all levels, that the staff is diverse, secular and religious, that what we study is diverse, the content, also Western classics and Jewish classics, and finally, that the student body is diverse. So those are three different angles that brought us all in to start building this, and we started with six students in 2006, and this year we're going to have more than 300 students and more than 2,500 alumni. So it seems like my friends and I tapped into something real, a real hunger among young Israelis after the army for serious Judaism and pluralism and content. And I think it's that ability that you and your colleagues demonstrated to kind of tap into what people are interested in, what they're talking about, where their hearts and minds are, that perhaps made you so able to diagnose some things in this book that we're here to talk about, Catch 67. So in the most talked about part of the book, you lay out this fascinating thesis that each side of the political spectrum has been half right and half wrong, or maybe half successful at advancing their arguments and half unsuccessful. Can we start with the left wing and just tell us where has the left wing succeeded and where have they failed? So the left wing as a brand failed in Israel. Most Israelis don't want to be labeled left wing, but as an argument, very successful. Now, the main argument that the left presents that is very successful and very popular among Israelis is what's called today the demographic argument, which is the understanding that if Israel holds on to the West Bank and will continue holding on to the West Bank in the decades to come, so Israel as a Jewish state will cease to exist. Because for Israel as a Jewish democracy to continue to exist, Israel has to maintain a very strong, massive Jewish majority. And if we hold on to the West Bank, we don't have that Jewish majority. And this is an argument that's presented with statistics, numbers, and a lot of passion 
from the left for the past few decades, and it's really sunk in. Majority of Israelis accept this argument. Majority of Israelis are very worried that if we stay in the West Bank, we're threatening our majority, the Jewish majority of Israel, and therefore threatening Israel as a Jewish democracy. And in that sense, the left, that is label, is a brand, is very weak, its argument is very strong, and it persuaded between 60 and 70 percent of Israelis. But there's this other success that the right wing has had, which kind of acts as a countermeasure, right? Can you tell us about that? Yes. So the right has an argument that if Israel withdraws from the West Bank, Israel will shrink into borders which are not undefendable borders. Like, you know how in Israel today, the area that's surrounding the Gaza Strip is very unstable. The area surrounding the Gaza Strip gets shelled and bombed and people people don't want to live there. It's very unstable. And many Israelis are imagining, well, what will happen to the area surrounding the West Bank if we leave the West Bank? And the area surrounding the West Bank happens to be the most highly populated area in Israel. That's where 65% of Israelis live and 75% of the economy is concentrated and 70% of the culture is concentrated. So by leaving the West Bank, you're turning the center of Israel into an area that might look like the area next to Gaza, very unstable and not something that is a good pictures to anyone. So the argument of the right is that if Israel leaves the West Bank, it threatens its ability to defend itself. And 70, 80 percent of Israelis are persuaded by this argument of the right that Israel can't leave the West Bank or else it can't defend its security. So you put this together and you realize that Israelis are in a very interesting place to be, where on the one hand, they think that if they leave the West Bank, they're threatening their security. If they stay in the West Bank, they're threatening their majority, which means if we leave at the West Bank, we're threatening our future. And if we stay in the West Bank, we're threatening our future. And that is a very interesting place where many Israelis are positioned. Now, you see, Israelis are very famous for having a lot of certainty. Well, here's something many people don't know about Israel, about Israelis. They lost their political certainty. They're very confused when it comes to the big question the future of the West Bank. And so actually, at this time of increasing political polarization, which Israel certainly is not immune from, perhaps a majority of Israelis even actually contain elements or have accepted elements of arguments from both the left and the right and have kind of internalized those. Yes, this is very interesting. Israelis, well, I think Israel went through a process that the world is going through, is that people stop voting for policies. It's like people, before they decide what to vote for, they're not asking what are the main policies of the candidates. People vote for their identities. People vote for their tribes. So the left-right battle in Israel, like in the States and like in many places in the world today, is identity. It's about tribes. It's not about ideas. It's not about policies. But if it would have been about policies, so it turns out that because most Israelis are confused regarding the policy and they lost their certainty, so most Israelis agree on the main issue. They agree that they're very confused and very perplexed. The fact that both the right and the left won the argument doesn't mean that most Israelis became centrist. Again, because people today vote for their tribes and their identities. But when it comes to policies, most Israelis lost their certainty and most of them agree on the main problems. 
Now, Micha, I find your analysis to be truly incisive, but you don't only play diagnostician in the book, right? You're not just telling us about things how they are. You do also have a prescription of sorts. You have some suggestions for how to, is it right to say break the impasse? Can you tell us about that part? Yes. I actually think that the fact that we're in a catch, the fact that many of us feel that if we leave the West Bank, we're threatening your future. If we stay in the West Bank, we're threatening your future. Many think that kind of thinking is leading us to, to be paralyzed. It's creating very passive politics. And I think maybe it's the other way around. Maybe we should rethink about how do we do politics today in the Middle East. And what I speak about is the small steps solution. See, ever since Oslo, ever since the early 90s, there have been 17 different attempts to solve the conflict. 17. All 17 failed. Now, I'm not sure that the Middle East needs an 18th attempt. And definitely not recycling the same ideas we used and failed 17 times. There's no real reason why it will work the 18th time. <laughs> Even though 18 is a lucky number, in and I'm not sure we should build on that. Right? I think we should start thinking about small steps. And small steps, their purpose is to break what seems like in Israel, there's a zero-sum game. And the unspoken zero-sum game is the following. Many Israelis feel that the more Israel is in control over the Palestinians, the safer they are. The less control they impose on Palestinians, the less safe they are. And since Israelis don't really want to control the Palestinians, and yet they don't want to be threatened by the Palestinians, they're paralyzed. But that is a false zero-sum game. Because there are steps, many steps, that would reduce the Israeli control over Palestinians on the one hand and would not reduce the security of Israelis on the other hand. And I'll give you one important step. The Palestinians in the West Bank are suffering from something really almost unthinkable. And that is that they're living in autonomous zones controlled by Palestinian authority. But the problem is that those autonomous zones are not territorially connected to each other. So when people are speaking about occupation, what are they speaking about? I think they're speaking about the fact that these lands are not connected to each other. That means, let me just put this in a very simple example, that if you're a Palestinian living in Ramallah, it's a town north of Jerusalem. When you're sitting in Ramallah, the cops guarding you, the system that's running your life, is Palestinian. It's a Palestinian autonomy. And you're not experiencing... That's not where you're experiencing occupation. Here's when you leave Ramallah and you want to drive to visit your cousin in Nablus, which is to the north of Ramallah. Now you're in territory which is Israeli controlled by the IDF, by the Israeli army, which means they could stop you on the road, which means if they want to, they could decide that you don't leave Ramallah. Or if you can leave Ramallah, for some reason you can't enter Nablus because there's a security thing or something. And that is where your destiny is tied to someone else and their will and what they are deciding at that moment. And that is where I would say 70, 80% of the humiliation and the bad experience of occupation, that's where it's located. It's there. It's the fact that the Palestinian autonomous zones are not connected to each other. So there are plans that exist to build a whole set of roads that would connect all the Palestinian zones to each other. 
And it will take, you know, building bridges and tunnels, and it won't be very easy. You know, but it's, it's technical. It's, it's doable and it's possible. And what you could do is build those roads and then give the Palestinians sovereignty over those roads. Now, there's a consensus among Israeli generals that this would not risk any Israeli. Obviously, it would dramatically reduce the occupation of the Palestinians. So here you have one step that reduces occupation of Palestinians, doesn't reduce security of Israelis. Let's do it. And listen, let's do it independent of a peace plan, independent on the grand solution. Let's just do it because it's the right thing to do. Let's just do it. Now, that's an example of one step. I think there's at least 11 steps. Listen, every step is a small step, but the sum of small steps is actually a great step. And where these steps will take us in the end of the day will not be, and this is an important point of my book, will not be end of conflict. It won't lead to the end of the conflict. It will lead to the shrinkage of the conflict. And this is, I think, maybe one of the most important points I'm trying to make in the book, is that we're trapped in a false dichotomy. People on the right are speaking about we can't solve the conflict, so just hang on to the status quo, not do anything, and manage the conflict. People on the left are saying we can't manage the conflict. It's immoral and it's unmanageable. Let's solve the conflict. And what my book is saying, well, maybe we can't solve the conflict, but the alternative is not to manage it. The alternative is to shrink it. And in order to shrink it, I think we have to start change the paradigm from the grand solution to something that looks like the small steps solution. We measure success not in light of the question, how is the result compared to a perfect reality? Because compared to a perfect reality, you always fail. But we ask, how are the results compared to where we were yesterday? And let's think of the politics that would lead the Palestinians 10 years from now to a place that's much better than they are today. And it leads Israelis to a place that they're more secure than they are today. And if it's better than it is today, that's good enough. And what will we do 10 years later? Let's do that again. So I think this way of thinking is not utopian, but I think it is optimistic because it does believe that the future could be better than the present, but only if we don't try to make the future perfect. If we're willing to make it a more perfect union, to quote an important American, <laughs> we're willing to make more perfect. So I think there is room to move forward. The book is Catch 67. Micha Goodman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. Manya, when you're talking with your family at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Sefi, it may not come as a surprise to you that at our Shabbat table this week, we will be discussing and eating food. More specifically, pomegranate glazed salmon. Since I got married, I've discovered to the shock and amazement of all my former roommates that cooking is my favorite way to unwind, create, indulge, and make my family smile, in most cases. But I have zero culinary instincts and follow recipes to the letter. Two oil-stained cookbooks get the most use, Yotam Adelenghi's Jerusalem and Zahav by Chef Michael Salmanoff. In fact, those cookbooks have not only been my gateway to cooking, they in many ways have been my gateway to Jewish culture and a connection to Israel. I've been eager to make a pilgrimage to Philadelphia, home to Zahav, the restaurant behind the cookbook, and a whole constellation of Israeli-inspired restaurants. Laser Wolf, a skewer house named for the butcher and fiddler on the roof, Kfar, a cafe and bakery inspired by one outside of Tel Aviv, and the latest edition, Moshava Philly, a food truck that serves Israeli street food. 
While Israeli cuisine is in a constant state of evolution, Zahav's website explains, the cooking at Zahav comes from a deep well of Israeli hospitality. But hospitality is not what was shown to Moshava this past weekend in the city of brotherly love. The food truck was ousted from a festival celebrating immigrant chefs for fear that pro-Palestinian protesters may threaten people's safety at the event. Many protesters had already announced on social media that they would boycott the festival, decrying Israel's alleged cultural appropriation of Palestinian food. But the public outcry over Mashaba's ouster led organizers at the 11th hour to cancel the entire festival. Many decried the organizers' decision to remove the food truck as anti-Semitism. But the owner of Mashaba did not. He decried the lack of courage. We really do hope that in the future you don't succumb to such anti-Semitic and dividing rhetoric and keep true to your words of a safe environment for all religions and nationalities, not just all of them except Israeli and Jewish ones, the company wrote on social media. Last week, I talked about the ignorance behind what was supposed to be a respectful gesture to honor Jewish heritage that instead came across as anti-Semitic. But sometimes cowardice can be the cause of offense, too. Hearing anti-Semitism and saying nothing or bowing out of the conversation when it gets tense. As Salmanoff writes in Zahav, the cookbook, there aren't really Israeli restaurants in Israel. There are Bulgarian restaurants, Arabic, Georgian, Yemenite. What connects them, he writes, what makes them Israeli, is an approach to dining and hospitality that is shaped by a shared experience. As my family shares a meal out of Salmanoff's cookbook this Shabbat, that's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table. Sefi? This week, I was transfixed by a glimpse of an Israeli flag. Let me back up. This week, I watched the documentary Crip Camp on Netflix, which tells the story of Camp Jened, a summer camp for people with physical disabilities that operated in the Catskills from the 50s through the 70s. While the film isn't explicitly Jewish, many of its stars, former campers and counselors at Jened, are. The story begins by exploring the camp through archival footage taken by one of the campers, goes on to talk about the status of people with disabilities in America at the time, and culminates in the fight to pass the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990, which, it turns out, involves a great deal of advocacy from the former Jened campers. The movie is beautiful, inspiring, powerful. At turns, it's horrifying, as when the story turns to the conditions at Willowbrook State School where New York warehoused children with disabilities for decades. And at turns, it's hilarious, like when the main characters get down to brass tacks and explain that their camp, like all other summer camps, was principally about finding young love. You should all watch it. About halfway through the movie, the main characters move to Berkeley, California, which had become a disabilities mecca with the creation of the Center for Independent Living. It is there that our stars get involved in disabilities advocacy, and it is in footage of one of the rallies that they attended where the Israeli flag appears happily waving in the hands of one of the attendees. I was struck because I can't imagine something like that in Berkeley today. Last week, the Berkeley Rent Stabilization Board, which should probably be concerned with the homeless people dying in the streets of their city, passed a resolution condemning Israel. The resolution and the debate around it were just as smug, self-righteous, and sanctimonious as you might imagine, and the effect of the measure will be nil. It was only the latest anti-Israel blow from perhaps the most progressive city in the country, but it still stung. 
as Jews feel increasingly isolated in America. Still, I was so glad to see that glimpse of an Israeli flag because it reminded me that it is, of course, possible to be progressive, to be a crusader for civil rights, and to work hard to improve our nation, all while being proudly pro-Israel. In fact, the two aren't just compatible, they should go hand in hand. Israel upholds our American values. Israel's enemies most certainly do not. I'll be talking about this documentary, That Glimpse of a Flag, and how proud I am to advocate for Israel at my Shabbat table. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash people of the pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop onto Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.